Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, African family. This is the African Liberation Media Podcast. And I'm your brother almost here with the great elder, Baba Makaru. How you doing tonight, Baba? Hotel Bado Mapampano with BB forty A, brother almost an African family. It's it's always a great day to be in the studio and having an opportunity to discuss uh, various issues with the African community. I say. Before we get started, you know, this week I uh was just thinking about some of the great elders that we've lost here in the Charlotte community. And this is not anything uh, uh, ceremonial or anything like that. But I just wanted to pay homage or sort of do a libation for uh, our great ancestor, Brother Rafi, uh, the elder Rodney Manigo, and also Brother Ubra Tim, who also transitioned. Two great elders pillars of the Charlotte community um, have done a lot of things for a lot of people in the community for years. And, you know, we oftentimes call on the names of our ancestors that are further away from us, but we also must remember the ancestors that are close to us right here in our immediate family. So I just wanted to give a, a libation for those two brothers. Arshe, Arshe, I know the one thing when when Brother Reggie asked asked me to do the libation at the male's place, a lot of times when they're having their programs, he'll ask me to do a libation. And he'll ask me to always remember the the ancestors who uh, contributed directly to the male's place. And we always remember uh, Elder Rafi, Rodney Manigo, along with uh, uh, Brother Austin Roper, a, a dynamic brother, uh, dedicated uh, to uh, the uplift of, of our young people and, of course, uh, uh, the Minister P, who was a comedian and a, just another brilliant brother. So, yeah, we always always do need to keep those, keep those ancestors close, you know, in, you know, in our minds and in our hearts because, you know, they're the ones. I'm, I know when I, I, pull my, I pull libations every day, so, you know, I always go through, I say. you know, with my family members first, uh, you know, obviously thanking the creators and the spiritual creations. But uh, we um, we also remember a lot of our people, whether they were, you know, classmates, comrades in the struggle that have uh, transitioned. So, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned uh, those brothers, uh, Brother Amos. I say. We have a lot to deal with tonight in a little bit of time. Uh, tragedy continues to strike the African community across the world, but specifically right here in Charlotte. Uh, recently, um, there are multiple tragic events, um, some that were done by the barbaric forms of racism and white power, and others that were done by African people who are participating 
and violence that's continually destroying the lives of people within our families and our communities. So it's very important that we discuss these things and bring these things to the table um, to stay informed, but also to pay our respects and uh, pay homage to the senseless life loss um, right here in Charlotte. Uh, there was a sister who was killed by the name of Kendall Crank. She was a mother of a nine-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. And she was in nursing school, minding her own business, driving down the street when a bullet, which was not meant for her, went through a car and struck her. And of course she died after that gunshot. Uh, the three brothers who, who did this, who were responsible for this, have been arrested, but what does an arrest do for a life that's lost? And she was only 27 years old, so much of her life was still ahead of her. Once again, a life cut too short. Yeah, it was, it was a tragic week, you know, in Charlotte, which is uh, experiencing a very violent year, to be perfectly honest with you, and neither law enforcement nor the social scientists actually have a, have a firm understanding of why uh, we have some understanding based on our study of the great ancestor, Dr. Amos N. Wilson, who uh, taught us about what, what he called the psychodynamics of black self-annihilation in service of white domination. I'll explain that in just a minute. But just uh, just to recap, uh, you know, it seems it seems like, <laughs> you know, uh, young young Miss Crank was caught in a crossfire, but it seems like we as Africans in America in a, uh, in a crossfire because between you have state-sponsored violence that takes place. We hear about most often the killings. We don't hear often about all of the beatings that take place, the, the harassment, other things that uh, take place. People jailed on trumped-up charges. You know, all of that is 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 part of part of the. The vice, you know, that, that that we seem to be in between state-sponsored violence and then the violence of these people that just have—it seems almost as if they're void of spirituality, man, and the way they just go about uh, just firing bullets is, you know, as if they were, you know, out, you know, engaged in combat and a war, which a lot of them would probably be too scared to actually do that, but. You know they uh it's uh it, it's tragic we got 27 year old kendall crank and then uh the first incident of the of the week took place this past monday at the burger king on um Betis ford road which is in the heart of the black community for in charlotte for those who who are outside of the city 27 year old i, I mean i hope i'm pronouncing his name right dan Quirius franklin was shot by a white female police officer who said she perceived a threat. Uh, there's uh, there was a lot of disagreement as to what actually happened. Uh, the police have not released any of the videos, either the dash cam or the body cam, and apparently they are holding the video from inside the Burger King because apparently there was an altercation inside the Burger King between uh, this 
this man, uh, Brother Franklin, or it's someone else, and a Burger King employee, a female employee, and uh, the person brandished a gun. Uh, Brother Franklin walked out. The police said he was holding a gun. They said they gave him several orders to drop the gun. He didn't drop the gun, and the white female officer said she perceived a threat. And we don't know what this means, perceived a threat, because we always are hearing, you know, I feared for my life. I mean, Stefan Clark in the backyard of his, in his grandmother's backyard, uh, what did he had a cell phone? Yeah. Yeah, just holding a cell phone. I mean, you know, Tamir Rice, actually empty-handed, they, but, you know, he had been playing with a toy gun. I mean, feared, I feared for my life. I feared for my life. I mean, you know, people are running away from the police officers and they're saying this. So we don't know what was actually meant. Uh, by this officer saying that she perceived a threat and we won't know until the video is released and hopefully the uh, all of the cameras were activated. Let me just give a little history. Back in the 1990s, three African-Americans, all of them, all of whom were unarmed, were killed by the police in Charlotte. Uh, first was Wendy Gale Thompson, followed by, uh, I think that was in 1993, James Willie Cooper, in 1995, and then there was uh, uh, Carolyn Sue Bettiger in 1996 or 97. And so we held massive protests. We protested uh, in front of the police department at the city council meeting. Uh, we held a, a demonstration that we called Black Monday, where we got a permit to actually walk into the middle of Charlotte, right at the intersection of Trade and Trine, and shut the city of Charlotte down. And we had several demands. And one of those demands was that the police install dash cameras. Body cameras were, were not being used by law enforcement that we know of at that time, um, maybe by the FBI or the CIA or somebody. And we also uh, demanded a, a, a citizen's review board because there had been numerous complaints of police brutality but nothing was ever done, so we said we needed a, some civilian oversight. And actually, as a result of those protests, we got both of those things. The Civilian Re Review Board is basically toothless. Uh, it has absolutely no power to do anything. And as regarding the cameras, when Jonathan Farrell was killed here in Charlotte in uh, 2013, the first two officers who pulled up turned their dash cameras off. To me, that's tantamount to tampering with evidence. Mm -hmm. And he was killed. But we didn't get to see anything until the third officer pulled up. And, his, and he wasn't even involved in the altercation. As soon as he pulled up, you know, all he caught was, you know, Pharrell running and, you know, shots being fired. So we hope the, the cameras are available. Now, the, uh, the North Carolina legislature has passed a law which requires the police to go before a judge. It's sort of like the FISA court that they use to spy on people, which <laughs> is almost a joke given all of the spying that's going on by, by these social media organizations, which I'm sure is being transferred to the NSA and everybody else. But the uh, police department is now required to go before a judge to discuss, to, uh, to request that the uh, cameras be released. So, so uh, Chief Putney has decided not to ask for the release until 
his uh, homicide unit finishes their investigation. So we don't know. The people inside the Burger King said that the person they shot was not the right person, that the person who had caused the altercation got away. Now, I don't know how we can have this so mixed up. And here's one of the amazing things to me, brother, almost. We seem to have cell phones everywhere. It's mind-boggling. My daughter and I were talking about this. It's mind-boggling that there were no cell phones, video, from the incident that took place at the Burger King on Monday. Unless the police have confiscated it. I don't know. But that's just, it's just amazing. I mean, we, you know, a black man kicking a, a 78-year-old black woman on the subway. People are videoing, videoing. Well, we, but there's no, you know, we, as far as we know. No cell phone video has been released, so we, so we don't have that kind of independent verification where we're not dependent on. And, and we know how valuable this has been. The Walter Scott case, several other cases, we know that, this, that, that the cell phone video has been critical, you know, to, uh, to the evidence because, you know, lying speech becomes their native tongue, you know, once, <laughs> once something like this happens. So... So we had that incident, and uh, then we find out that a brother, a 21-year-old brother, who was a truck driver, was driving uh, on his route up in uh, Indiana, and uh, uh, his name is what, Oliver, Tamon Oliver, and uh, he uh, was found hanging inside the cab of uh, the 18-wheel truck that he was, you know, he, he drove 18 wheelers, right? He, 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 he was found hanging inside of his, the tractor, which pulls the trailer and all, when you put them all together, you have 18 wheels. So the coroner, uh, did an autopsy and ruled it a suicide. Now here's the strange thing about this. This happened in, in Indiana. You know, he was on the route, uh, you know, delivering, uh, products. This brother was six foot five. Now, I don't know how many people have been inside the cab of a tractor trailer. I have. I have actually driven those, driven those vehicles. It's inconceivable to me that a person 6'5 could actually hang himself or herself inside a cab. I just, I can't conceive of it. And then, then his, uh, his mother and some, uh, said that the detectives told them that the, the, the dashboard in, inside the truck had been like damaged, like it had been kicked, like somebody was struggling. Okay, so so they are they are they are asking that you know the case that the investigation continue. Yeah, you know, I don't know if the family can afford to have another autopsy done to to get a second opinion because just does just doesn't seem right. So this this brother was tw a twenty one year old native. Charlotte, a graduate, I think, of Harding High School. Uh, we got a picture of him on our Facebook page, honor roll student. I mean, you know, young, a young father planning to get married, trying to just do what's right. And why does he kills himself, they say, by hanging himself. In, you know, initially they said he was hanging inside the trailer. And okay, so I said, okay, that could be, but even six five inside of a trailer, that's you know, I mean that's so anyway. Uh, and then boom, uh, uh, we we hear about the the killing of a 
young uh, Kendall Crank, uh, who uh, I, I happened to know her stepfather. And uh, what we're dealing with here with this massive amount of uh, violence, um, Charlotte is actually on pace, Brother Almos, for 157 murders this year. The current record is one, is it 123 or 129? It happened during the crack era, okay? Hmm. And so Charlotte is on pace right now to break the record that was set in 1993. And we, act, you know, there's, there's a loss to try to explain this, but we know that a lot of it has to do with drug prohibition, right? I mean, the same way white bodies were stacking up in the streets of Chicago and New York during the era of alcohol prohibition, and this society couldn't tolerate that. They said, man, look, Al Capone, Bugs Moran, Dion O'Banion, Lucky Luciano, all of this killing is taking place. We, we got to stop this. So they removed the prohibition on alcohol. Drug prohibition causes the same thing. that we saw with Al Capone and Lucky Luciano and Bugs Moran. It's the same thing. But it's been black bodies that's been stacking up in the streets. Now, we we overcame we you know we overcame to a certain extent the 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 worst impact of of the crack era, and and we know from the Iran Contra scandal with Oliver North, Ronald Reagan, H. W. Bush, and all of these characters that uh, that they were using the the, the monies from the sale of crack cocaine in our inner cities to fund this rebel group uh, that they were supporting uh, in uh, Nicaragua called the Contras. They, they wanted to overthrow the, the Sandinistas who actually are now back in power and doing quite well. And, and they are, they are, this is a side note, they wanted to overthrow the Sandinistas. Of all of the immigrants that come from Central America, Latin America, the fewest number come from Nicaragua. They come from, and this is the country they wanted, these, this is the regime that they were fighting to overthrow. But anyway, so, you know, we know that. But Dr. Amos Wilson did his study called Black on Black Violence, the Psychodynamics of Black Self-Annihilation in Service of White Domination. And what he says is this violence, this violence, this uh, internecine conflict in our community serves a political purpose. A lot of it is economically driven uh, by the uh, high unemployment and everybody said, well, the black unemployment rate is down. Well, if you're using the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, official unemployment rate, then you're using something that isn't worth a hill of beans because uh, Willie, Willie Clinton, sick Willie Clinton, changed the metrics. They don't even count everybody that's unemployed. But, but, we, but, we, but we know that's taking place. Now, what, what are psychodynamics? The... Uh, Tupac Shakur, the, the, the brilliant artist, entertainer, Tupac Shakur had this thing called Thug Life. If you understand what those initials mean, then you understand, then that gives you a, a basis for understanding psychodynamics. Tupac said, Thug Life, the hate you give, little infants, and then there's a word that starts with F, everybody. Well, everybody becomes us. So what he's saying is that he said the hate you give, what, but this hate is actually also self-hatred. 
Uh, it's also the hatred that comes, you know, from from various institutions in terms of the way uh, our our people are treated in, in institutions, the way the way young people are are reprimanded and expelled and, and constantly being punished. You know, in schools, uh, we have the profiling of the police. We have uh, the, the failure, uh, you know, the fact that uh, people cannot, you know, get decent employment, decent housing. You have absentee fathers. A lot of things causes, you know, what Tupac called the hate you give. This hate is a broad category, but it plays out later in life. He said, you know, the hate you give little infants messes up everybody. That's that's the essence of psychodynamics, because the lyrics, these, these young some some of these children are listening to these lyrics while they're in their mother's womb. Lyrics that are advocating uh, self-destruction, uh, you know, which are just self-destructive behavior and the way we and the, the way we, we talk to one another using these these the language of white supremacy to describe one another. So. This is playing out in our streets and it requires, quite frankly, a mass-based struggle. One of the things that I was, that I was uh, amongst the sadness of the killing of 27-year-old Kendall Crank, one of the great things that happened was this group called Project Bolt, which is a, a group that's designed to reduce the recidivism. They went out and a group of other people came together and they held a, uh, a candlelight vigil. And to say, you know, that, 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 that we're tired of this taking place because as soon as the uh, brother was killed up on, uh, on Betis Ford Road at Burger King, uh, some protests erupted. We have to be upset about the loss of every black life, Okay. I mean, that just has to be the rule of thumb. And so, and so our, a lot of, of our people that are opposed to us were saying, why y'all so upset about one police killing somebody and you don't get upset about your own people doing it? Well, when Kendall Crank was killed the very next day, people were out expressing their moral outrage. So there are people who, who, do this right all black lives have to matter we understand the outrage that comes from people being killed by state-sponsored violence because number one the taxpayers we're paying these people number two they're supposed to be professionals so we understand the outrage and then they are most often exonerated now the three young men that 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 that, that were arrested one of them was only 17 years old they will be sentenced I don't, the sentence won't bring back the life of, of Kendall Crank, but they will be sentenced. These police officers generally walk. So that was a long-winded <laughs> statement there, brother, almost. But uh, I just had to, you know, get all of that out regarding, you know, what's what's taking place in our city yeah, this week. Going, looking at the Kendall Crank situation, and you touched on black-on-black violence, um, it seems as though, that it's going to a whole nother level with the uh, disrespect or the disregard for uh, African life. Um, Robin Williams 
he uh, he made a statement one time, and he said that uh, a lot of black people have high self-esteem but low racial esteem. Wow. Wow. And when you think very low of your race or your people, you, know, you have a self-hatred for your people, you have a self-hatred for your race, then it causes you to easily uh, commit violent acts or, uh, against each other or to fight against each other or to have conflict um, against each other. Right, right. Um, looking at that video of the Negro on the train that kicked the 78-year-old black woman <clears throat> in the face multiple times and just looking at how the people who sat around on the train, not only filming but ooing and eyeing, without any regard to wanting to help this this uh, elder that was under attack, it really shows you know the mind state of not only the, the the perpetrators of the act, but people in general who will just sit back and observe something like that happening. Mm, mm, it's like mm. the people who observed the the woman getting uh, punched out by the um, so-called neo-Nazi in uh, Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. It's nothing that would that 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 would have ever came to the, uh, any finger in my imagination that would see uh, a young man stomp out a 78-year-old mm, woman mm, like mm. that. Nothing. Mm -mm. I mean, even in our lowest points, people always had rules to the game. They did. And uh, that's just, I mean, it's just hardening to see. And the brother Sutek uh, out of uh, Harlem always has a statement that says, uh, you know, death to the Negro. He said, in order for the black man to live, the Negro must die. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's. And it's really that Negro mentality mm -hmm. of, of being stuck in that state where you don't respect your race. You don't have a high self-esteem. You don't see your people in a high light. Right. Right. So it causes you to do these type of things or commit these type of acts. And we got to get more responsible as a people and start dealing with these people within our communities and within our race. I agree with you. I, that, 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 that guy, 30, the 36-year-old guy that was repeatedly throwing karate kicks at, uh, at this 78-year-old woman and all of these Negroes were sitting there watching, he didn't need to be arrested in my opinion. And I, I misspoke. I said Robin Williams earlier. I meant Robin Walker. Okay. Yeah. Robin okay. Walker. I mean, you know, he he didn't he didn't he 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 needed he needed to be stomped himself. I'm, I'm just that that's just that's just all there is to it. Exactly. But uh, you know, Amos, you know, uh, Gullah Jack came by uh, the other night. Gullah, Gullah Jack is a walking encyclopedia of Amos Wilson quotes. <laughs> he really is. This this guy knows Amos. Upside down and inside out. And uh, Jack said, uh, Dr. Wilson teaches us our personalities have been organized so that when we are angered, we take out that anger on what we hate the most, which is ourselves. Right. And so this this is what we see taking place. But it would be inconceivable. It would be inconceivable that say even during the 1960s or 70s 
that that guy could have kicked that woman like that on the train and some brothers don't don't deal with him right there on the train. Would have been dead. Right there on the train. I'm talking about dead. right there on the train. They would have dealt with, you know, maybe with the cameras, they would have followed him out off the out of the subway, stomped a mud hole in him, brother. I'm, I'm serious. I'm very serious. Um, so, like, the other big news of, of the week was what happened, uh, at least uh, – as far as inter the entertainment people are concerned, was what happened in Chicago with the actor, uh, uh, Mr. Smollett, uh, who uh, had the, the charges dropped, 16 felony charges. You know, we can debate whether the 16 felony charges were, were just or whether they were excessive, but... It, uh, it it appeared to us that there were some wheels turning behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was your take on on that situation there with Smollett, uh, Brother Almost? Well, the case was compromised from the beginning um, because um, Michelle Obama's, what was it, chief administrator or chief of staff? Chief of, former chief of staff, former right. Former chief of staff. Yeah, uh, Tina, Tina Chen. Chen. Right. Um, interfered and text texted uh uh the DA uh what's her name Kimberly Fox Kim Fox right mm -hmm. yeah she she texted her asking if if she would work to get the case moved over to the FBI now see they they have federal control over the FBI so it's easy for them to you know navigate the investigation how they wanted to go so that was the the first the first red flag um, the second red flag was that Kim Fox was actually in communication with, um, I mean, excuse me, uh, Tina Chen was actually in communication with Jesse Smollett's family. And Kim Fox was also. And Kim Fox was too. Yes. So, you know, it shows the connection that he has to um, Barack and Michelle Obama. And um, it really made me question the whole uh, fiasco and seeing him as being a lone wolf. We all know that he put on the hoax, right? But I honestly believe that the hoax was bigger than him. I believe that this was a plot that failed and it was a deep state plot. And we say deep state, we're talking about, you know, government agencies that work with Jesse Smollett to push a certain agenda. And to me, that that agenda was the quote-unquote LGBTQ community under attack, a uh, homophile, homosexual agenda, pushing this agenda that somehow, um, you know, some racist Donald Trump supporters wanted to attack a black man, and they knew he was gay because they said that he, that, that, that they yelled, uh, you know, homophobic slurs and, mm -hmm. and racial slurs right. at him when the attack happened. Now, the police department came in, the Chicago police department came in, did a thorough investigation, even though we can't, you know, honestly trust the Chicago police department, and we'll talk about that. But in this situation, the police department led by Eddie Johnson, gay, you know, did a thorough investigation, and they found that evidence that, uh, Jesse Smollett paid these two Nigerian brothers 
to commit this act against him. I mean, it's video evidence of these brothers buying the hats. You know, they even said that it was video evidence of this is the MAGA hats. The, the MAGA hats. Okay. They even said it's video evidence of the, of Jesse Smollett in the car with these two brothers moments before the attack happened. Um. And then on top of that, the assistant DA even came out publicly and stated that, you know, he still feels that Jesse Smollett is guilty, that he, you know, he, this didn't exonerate him. To have all of his charges miraculously dropped and on top of that to have the court documents that the police were going to provide to the public, you know, the court sealed those documents so, so now we'll never know the full extent of the evidence that they had or could have taken the court against Jesse Smollett. So pretty much this whole thing is swept under the rug. And this was a huge blow. This was a detrimental blow to the homosexual community. And and you can lump in transgender, pedophilia, all the other communities that are riding with LGBTQ. All of them took a deep blow when Jesse Smollett was exposed for lying to the authorities about this incident. Because it's like the boy that cried wolf. You know, we always sit back and we always say that, you know, there are a lot of people within the homosexual community, a lot of pedophiles or whatever you want to call them, who commit egregious acts. And in most cases, when you look at a lot of the crime in our society, and people have done studies on this, a lot of people who commit crimes at some point in their life were sexually abused. Yes. Um, in some capacity. Right. So, I mean, it's a major issue. And for him to come out and make this story up for personal attention, and not only that, send a letter to himself as if he's that important where somebody wants to attack him. What kind of clout does Jesse Smollett have to where some white supremacists want to attack him? Out of all the people that they could attack, and I'm not saying it's impossible, but, I mean, clearly we know now that, that it was all a lie. It was all a hoax. And we can see from the top down that, you know, once again, the, the Obama administration in some capacity uh, is connected to this. And they've always, since 2008, been on the side and the support of the LGBTQ community and working to protect them through the laws that they push, through the rhetoric that they push, and the attacks that they have against people who disagree with that way of life, or I can't even call it a way of life, but <laughs> with that death style that we call, you know, homosexuality, pedophilia, transgenderism, all the confusion of people wanting to normalize that behavior. We know for the African, it's never been a normal behavior. Right, right. Yeah, you know, Chris, Chris Rock, uh, Smollett was up for an NAACP Image Award uh, you know, which in some ways is a joke. They gave Donald Sterling one of those awards. The guy that used to own the uh, Los Angeles Clippers. But Chris Rock said last night, said, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? He, you know, he said he, they, they'd been told no Smollett jokes. And, you know, Chris Rock, of course, did. You know, he had to say something. So he said, what, what was he thinking? And so when you look at it, when you look at it from a personal perspective, what did he have personally to gain from this? I mean, this guy's already 
a star, right? He's dominated for all these awards and, and everything. What personally, what was there for him to gain? So, well, he felt like in his career he was losing. Oh, did he? Losing steam. And I also, I mean, in this side, you could tell that this was that, that uh, 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 another key that shows that this was a hoax, even before the evidence came out that this was a hoax. Immediately after this guy's attack, he comes out and proclaims himself to be the quote-unquote gay Tupac. Oh, really? Wow. Now, why why is it that, you know, these guys always want to relate homosexuality to uh, people who have transitioned, not, not him saying that Tupac was gay, but just to put him in that same class hmm. almost gives you the idea that he is somewhat, you know, doing or went through the same thing that Tupac went through. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of these people running around, you know, talking about people as if they were committing these homosexual acts when they live or they were somehow gay. People saying that Amos Wilson was gay. Oh, God. People saying that uh, Malcolm X was gay. People mm. saying that Nat Turner was gay. They continuously try to push this narrative and push this agenda, mm -hmm. not only on people that are here in the living now, but people that already lived their life. Imagine if you transition <laughs> and 30 years, 40 years from now, you got somebody coming out slandering your legacy on something that you didn't even agree with. Yeah. I hope their tongue would be burnt out. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I know what I, what I was saying was that it, you know, to me, it, it's, uh, it's certainly, you know, within the realm of possibility that there were political motivations in terms of you know the larger queer movement and the and the and the Democrat campaign against you know Donald Trump, so that you know that's what I was thinking. But but what we know mm -hmm. for a fact is, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, the prosecutor uh, Kim Fox recused herself from the case, but she kept control of the case within her office. So. So therefore, we don't know what kind of influence she was having on, on the decisions that that were being made. We 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 know about the, the Obama connection, right? And we know about her connection to the, to the Smollett family, and but but I think there are a couple of things that people should, should just always keep in mind regarding this this particular case, and that, and that is. Two of the reasons that they gave was that uh, this this guy, you know, was was a nonviolent offender, and that as a result of that, he was eligible for what they call alternative prosecution. We have thousands of young black people in jail who are nonviolent offenders who are in prison nonviolent offenders, some for maybe getting caught selling marijuana for two or three times. Okay. So if, if the, if that's the standard, I, I want all of those people released from prison. None, none from, from this point forward, none, none of those people, all of those people should be given the same opportunity for alternative prosecution. Now we know that's not going to happen because they don't know Obama or they don't, they don't have any, you know, big time friends in entertainment or whatever. But I'm just saying, this is one thing that people need to keep in mind. If, if you got a court case <laughs> coming up, 
Ask them for, look, I'm a nonviolent offender just like Smollett. Can I have alternative prosecution? Don't send me to jail. Mm-hmm. Now we know we know how that's going to that how that's going to play, you know, with a lot of these uh, you know white supremacist prosecutors around the country. But nevertheless, you can you can you can use that. Okay. Uh, the other thing is uh, the Illinois the law in Illinois does allow if a person uh, you know has been uh, if the charges have been dropped. Uh, the, the law does allow them to request that the case be sealed. And that's what Smollett did. So what does that say? What does that say? That says there's something that he's hiding something. Right. There's something, there's something that he doesn't want the public to know. Because if, if I had been wrongly accused, drug through the mud, and the charges got dropped. I would want everybody to see all the evidence to know that I'm innocent. Mm-hmm. That's what I would want to do. So this, this is weird. But uh, uh, the other thing, you know, that we, that we put up on our page is that there is so much police corruption in Chicago that, that quite frankly, in my opinion, um, you know, there, you know, no, there, there, no, there are no winners here because uh, just last month, the uh, a judge overturned the drug convictions of ten more men who were framed by a disgraced former police sergeant, a Negro named Ronald Watts, bringing the total number of people cleared in the scandal to sixty-three. So this this uh, this black police officer, sergeant was arresting people on trumped-up charges, planting drugs on them, mm-hmm. and was getting convictions. And then, then we have the case of, uh, of a former uh, Chicago police detective named John Burge, uh, who between 1972 and the 1990s was actually running a torture chamber. He was torturing people in the Chicago Police Department to force them to confess the crimes that they didn't commit. And this wound up costing the taxpayers of Chicago uh, a tremendous amount, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million somewhere. So, 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 so we're dealing with a very, 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 very corrupt institution. Now, one other lesson that can be learned from this. If people, the Chicago Police Department and the police union wanted Kim Fox to assign a, a special prosecutor. They wanted, they wanted the Obamas wanted the prosecution. They wanted the case handed over to the FBI. And you got to think now, these guys are no longer in office. So they got that kind of pull with the FBI right now. That's something to think about. But, uh, the, 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 they wanted, they wanted Kim Fox to hand it over to a special prosecutor. We have been saying in a number of these cases involving the police, the Demir Rice case, the Michael Brown case, we've been saying that the, 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 the prosecuting attorney or the district attorney who works hand in hand with the police on a daily basis shouldn't be allowed to prosecute those cases, that there should always be a special prosecutor in those particular cases. So when the Chicago police started calling for a special prosecutor, I said, well, that's like the boy who cried wolf because when we ask for special prosecutors when you all kill one of our people unarmed, 
Y'all don't want them. But that's something that, that, that we should demand. So, you know, those are just a few takeaways, uh, you know, from from this particular uh, situation. And you're always going to have hypocrisy with the police when there's stuff not going their way. Because um, in many cases, we ask for evidence to be released. On a lot of cases with police brutality, with, you know, police shootings, and they want to, you know, seal the case up and not release evidence to the public. So when it's in their favor, of course, they, they're going to want to release it. And um, in this situation, I wish they would have released it because it would have gave us opportunity to see what what they had on Smollett. But, I mean, like you said, I mean, talking about a hypocritical, corrupt uh, police force uh, that's been historically detrimental to black people. Exactly. Um, especially in, the, in, in in that city. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah, go ahead, brother. Well, the last thing we wanted to touch on, you know, we run out of time here. Um, but recently, The Guardian uh, published an article, and uh, it talked about claims made by Alexander Jones uh, in a documentary. Uh, Alexander Jones was a former mercenary uh, in South Africa who worked as an intelligence officer and he talked about how in the 1980s and the 1990s, they were purposefully spreading HIV or AIDS throughout South Africa to black people. Um, it was a project that was run by a group in South Africa and in Mozambique. Mm. So last week we were talking about um, the genocide and the genocidal tactics that Europeans are doing right now with the cereal that was found in Uganda, uh, the UN having poisoned the cereal. Uh, there was also a case of an energy drink in Zambia containing uh, Viagra. Uh, so you have the people drinking the energy drink and then they're you know, taking in this drug, Viagra, without even knowing it. Wow. And then also we talked about last week the mosquitoes that scientists are have released already in Burkini Fossil, but are now planning to also try to release, re-release in other areas in Africa to uh, quote-unquote fight against malaria. Um, but with the history of Europeans, we, we can't really trust that as a fact. And we also talked about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and their role in you know, spreading diseases across the African continent through the vaccines that are pushed uh, by the World, World Health Organization. So this is another example of, of Europeans purposefully spreading diseases to African people. And this is something they've historically done. They've historically sp spread diseases um, when they've come into contact with people where, in the places that they've traveled throughout history, they've spread you know, various diseases. And in, in, in many cases, the reason why a lot of people need vaccines uh, or, or people promote vaccines is because of many of the diseases that Europeans took around the world. <laughs> you know, if people stayed in their own habitat, you wouldn't you'd be susceptible to anything to need a vaccine. Right. But because of the destruction and the uncleanliness the bacteria and the infections that they've spread 
from traveling to other other places and exploiting people and uh, um, opposing their will onto the people, people have contracted these diseases. And um, in many cases, a lot of people have been wiped out yeah. uh, from these diseases. So, you know, Europeans, when I was in Uganda, there was a, um, a health organization there trying to teach African men how to wear condoms. Mm. Because they were saying that, you know, HIV and AIDS is high, so we're trying to, you know, talk about uh, ways to prevent these these different type of diseases. Well, you come in and you spread the disease, and then you come in with aid to try to help the people um, with medication or with these classes on, uh, you know, safe sex and these different things. And in most cases, even though safe sex classes is another agenda of population control mm-hmm. by not wanting Africans to continue to produce children. So, of course, they're going to promote, you know, always wearing condoms and things of that nature. Right. Um, the guy um, who released a documentary um, said it claims that the group's leader um, had a racist apocalyptic obsession with HIV AIDS. Mm. Uh, this guy Keith Maxwell wrote about a plague he hoped would decimate black populations, cement white rule, and bring back conservative religious mores according to the papers collected by the filmmakers. Wow. Ma- Maxwell had no medical qualifications but ran clinics in poor, mostly black areas around Johannesburg while claiming to be a doctor. And that gave him an opportunity for for the sinister uh, experimentation on black people. Wow. So, you know, we go back once again to uh, the Tuskegee experiment mm-hmm. that was actually allowed by Robert Russo Moton. Uh, and we can go into that topic another day, but he allowed them to come into Tuskegee and perform this test on black people by infecting them with syphilis and purposefully not giving them a cure to it to see how syphilis would affect the human body. Um, and, and he was doing all of this, you know, of course, you know, because they, they said that they would, you know, donate to the school. Um, but here you have it once again, you know, whites coming in, coming in, acting as if they're philanthropists or doctors not even a real doctor, opening up clinics, treating black people. And a lot of this is is really also on us too. Because, because of the lack of education about who the enemy is mm. and what to expect from your enemy, we fall victim to these types of things and we allow them to come, to, to, to come and happen within our communities. Um, but we have to. That's why we have to be educated and aware of the capabilities of the European. They will go to any extreme level that they can to exterminate people, animals, insects, etc. Yeah, the, and the amazing thing is, that, you know, these are the people that uh, that the ANC and some others, uh, you know, Bishop Tutu and the others th- thought they could form a rainbow nation with. I mean, that, that that's just. Uh, it's, it's difficult to understand, you know, that thought process. Uh, one thing I, I neglected to mention when we, we were talking about the um, psychodynamics of black self-annihilation, 
you know, we want to keep the uh, family of 10-year-old Rania Wright in uh, South Carolina. I think she, I think they're in Walterboro. Um, she, she's a fifth grader, 10 years old, and she was killed doing a fight inside a classroom. That's just hard to imagine how that could happen. Where were the adults? I mean, maybe if she was just immediately knocked down and hit her head, suffered a basal skull fracture or something like that. But it's just, it's just hard to believe that um, this ten-year-old child, you know, lost her life in a classroom. It's just, it's just, it's just. I mean, not a mass shooting. Obviously, you know, we we have, you know, those things take place. But and uh, the other thing. Um, as we run out of time, just wanted to mention that uh, another one of our HBCUs is apparently facing a crisis. The college, the university that was founded by the great Mary McLeod Bethune, Bethune-Cookman University, may lose its accreditation due to financial problems. I guess, you know, this seems to be a reoccurring theme here we just saw this recently with Bennett College and you know this is I mean just the legacy of this lady Mary McLeod Bethune having this dream this idea of starting this university and all of the people that have benefited from you know the education that they received at that institution and now now we find out that uh it may lose its accreditation. We hope that doesn't happen. We hope that they somehow are able to recover. But, you know, some of this is, uh, you know, a lot of these colleges face financial mismanagement. Others uh, declining enrollment because people can get a certainly a much cheaper education. And in some instances, a lot of times a more valuable education in, education in, in, in community colleges. And, you know, then, of course, you have the uh, larger institutions that people can attend because, you know, integration. So, you know, a lot of these HBCUs are, are suffering and uh, it, it would be a, it would be a tragedy in my mind if if, you know, Bethune Cookman uh, lost his accreditation. I mean, we certainly, you know, hope that it is you know, what has happened to some other schools now. I th they had a list of them the other day. I can't remember all of them, but, uh, you know, there have been a lot of them that have already closed, that have already lost it. That um, So, you know, we are hoping that doesn't happen. But we are going to, to continue uh, our struggle for the liberation and empowerment of African people. This week we we honored the, the great, uh, warrior queen, the mother of Yar Santawa, because on May, uh, on March 28th, 1900, was the uh, anniversary of the war for the Golden Stool, when she challenged the uh, the men of, of the Ashanti people. She said, if y'all won't fight, then we'll organize the women and we'll go out and fight. And of course, they captured our sister uh, leading the struggle. She was fighting. They They captured her and she wound up being exiled to the Seychelles or somewhere where she actually died, but a great, great African warrior queen. 
And we just want to lift up the name this week of the great, great, great uh, Mary. I mean, uh, Yara Santawa. And uh, we're going to continue to present this information and raise the consciousness of our people. And until next week, this has been the African Liberation Media. I say, I'm big for Hodie. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes, does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.